Dr. Robert Vinoy, Old Testament History, Lecture Number 29. This course is a two-part course, so let's just pick up where we left off in the course and just continue on. On that assignment schedule, you'll notice I will follow the same procedure that we did the last quarter. That is, there are reading assignments with the due date on Friday of each week. There is a potential for a quiz on that material for each Friday. The books are Schultz, Finnegan, and the other book for Friday, April 15th, Edward R. Teeley, A Chronology of the Hebrew Kings by Zondervan, 1977. Teeley wrote a large volume called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings, in which he analyzed that chronological issue of the synchronization between the lengths of reigns of the kings in the north and the kings in the south. That's long been recognized as a problem in biblical chronology, how you synchronize them. Because if you simply take the book of Kings and start adding them up, pretty soon they are out of alignment. So-and-so reigned so many years in the north and so many years in the south. And then the guy in the south began a certain year and the rule of the king in the north, and he reigned so many years. They're interrelated that way. It's a problem if you just take the numbers as they are in the text and try to work out that synchronization. Now, Teeley spent probably most of his life working on that problem. He came up with certain ideas about the ways in which chronologies were kept in the ancient world particularly in Israel, and some of those methodologies change from time to time. Things like, when do you start a king's reign? In other words, suppose a king comes on the throne in December, using our calendar. When is the first reign of his reign? Is it 1987 or is it 1988? Do you count the first full year or do you count the section of the previous year as the first year of his reign. It's called accession year or non-accession year. That could make a difference of a year, depending on which way you count them. Other things like co-regencies, where one king would reign and then appoint his son to begin his reign, and they would continue reigning together for a period of time. There would be an overlap. Then the question is, when do you count the end of the reign of the first king? When he ended his rule totally, or when the co-regency began? Those are just two problems. Which calendar do you use in Israel for the beginning of the year? Do you use the religious calendar or the civil calendar? There are different calendars. There were a lot of factors like that. He worked out the details assuming certain things, principles that do resolve, for the most part, these problems of synchronization chronologically. Not totally, but for the most part. That book is a very technical book, a very lengthy book. The one on your assignment sheet is a popularized summary of his findings, which is a short book in a relatively popular style. Unfortunately, it went out of print a couple years ago, which is a real shame because it's a real service for the purpose of a course like this to understand the nature of that chronology problem. There are, however, I think, 
around at least a dozen copies of that in our library on the reserve shelf. So notice a statement there, quote, multiple copies on reserve in the library. Plan ahead, end quote. Don't leave that reading until Wednesday of the week of April 15th. You may come there and find that you can't get a book. Try to plan ahead. There should be plenty of copies for everyone. But for the rest, the readings are in Schultz, where you will read Schultz and also read the corresponding books in the Old Testament, Joshua and Judges for March 11th, and then Judges and Samuel as well. That's chapters 6 and 7 of Schultz. So when you read Schultz, be sure to read the corresponding section of the Old Testament as well. Now, I also had intended this afternoon to explain that statement made under Friday, March 11th, quote, map study, end quote. You'll have to do that tomorrow because I didn't bring enough sheets with me. What I want to do also this week is a map study. This isn't anything elaborate. It's just that I want to give you a list of cities, rivers, some mountains, major geographical locations in Palestine that you will encounter as soon as you come into Joshua and Judges. I'd like you to map them out so you have an idea of where these places are. But I'll give you that list tomorrow. That map, then, will be due on Friday of this week. Also, on that map will be the tribal boundaries. When you get to the latter part of the book of Joshua, the land is divided. The borders are assigned to each of the tribes. I want you to know where the tribe of Judah is, Ephraim, Manasseh, and so forth. There will be a map question on the midterm exam. The midterm is April 8th. I won't quiz you Friday on the map. There is a possibility of being quizzed on the reading. I'm not saying that there will be, but it's a possibility. I will have a map question on the midterm exam. What I'll do is put a map on the screen with letters and numbers, and I'll give you names, and you'll have to match them with the letters and numbers. And that will particularly apply to tribal areas. I'd like you to know where the tribes are, okay? One other thing, extra credit. You may receive extra credit for the course by reading one or more of the following books. Your grade will be raised by the amount indicated after the title. No one may receive more than four-tenths of a grade point extra credit. I have four books listed there, three of them by Walter Kaiser. The first one is by J. Barton Payne, Theology of the Older Testament, for four-tenths of a grade point. That's a rather large book. It's a book on Old Testament theology. Any of Kaiser's books, two-tenths of a grade point, so you can either read Payne for four, or you can read two of Kaiser for four, or read one of Kaiser for two-tenths of a grade point for an extra credit. Now, that extra credit is on your final grade. In other words, whatever your grade comes out at the end of the quarter, you have done that, and you notice that in order to receive this credit, you must give me a written statement that you have read the entire book carefully. That's what I ask. There's a deadline on that, though, which is prior to the end of the semester. It's April 29th. Notice that. In other words, I don't want you to spend your reading on the last week or two of the semester trying to catch up on extra credit reading. 
I'd rather you be putting time on your course. But if you do that by April 29th, I'll give you that credit. You give me the statement that you've read the entire book and you've read it carefully. Just don't turn the pages and skim it. Read it. It's a four-point system. If you had, for example, if you had a 2.64 average at the end of the quarter, if they get four-tenths of a grade point, they would have a 3.04, which would raise them from a C-plus to a B. Or maybe it's a B-minus, 3.04. It'd be a B-minus, then it'd raise them. It depends on where you fall on the scale, of course, but generally it would make a difference of a plus or a minus. If you find your class outline that we used last quarter, we were discussing when the quarter came to an end, quote, the life of Joseph, end quote, which is G on page 4. We were discussing, quote, the life of Joseph, end quote, which is G on page 4. And we'd come down to 3 under G, quote, the significance of these events in the context of redemptive history, end quote. I had mentioned one thing under that heading, and that was that this section of Genesis 37 until the end, Joseph temporarily becomes prominent, although Judah is in the line of the promised seed. And that's what we had discussed at the end of the last week before our break. So I want to pick up at that point. This would be B. Then, under 3, we're discussing, quote, the significance of these events in the context of redemptive history, end quote. B, quote, the children of Israel are united and brought to Egypt, where, in the isolation of Goshen, they become a nation, end quote. Through Joseph, the house of Jacob is restored, and unity is restored to that house. There are a couple statements there in the latter part of Genesis, when Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers, and they are aware that here this man, this one that they had sold into Egypt, is now powerful, a ruler, and could certainly take revenge. He doesn't do that. If you look at Genesis 45, verse 4, just after he has revealed who he is, Joseph says, quote, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph the one you have sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God." In other words, that attitude of Joseph is really remarkable from a human standpoint. He seeks no revenge, but in taking that attitude, he restores the unity to the house of Jacob. Now, of course, that statement was made right at the time that he revealed himself to his brothers. Jacob hadn't even come down into Egypt yet. Of course, later the brothers go home, and Jacob comes down, and his entire family is in Egypt, and Jacob dies in Egypt. The brothers were still not too sure what Joseph is going to do to them, 
Is he just going to wait until Jacob is dead and then get his revenge? So you find in chapter 50, after Jacob has died, verse 15, quote, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we've done to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in previous affairs. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and for your children. So with that attitude, the family is united. It seems that the brothers repent of their offense against Joseph, and Joseph forgives them. The envy seems to be overcome in their relationship to Benjamin, the other son of Rachel. Remember, Joseph was the favorite son of his father, and the brothers resented that. But in this situation, the brothers were very much concerned for Benjamin, who was the other son of Rachel. You get that Leah-Rachel tension within the family of Jacob. That continued on, it seems, at this point. But with this situation, they are very protective of Benjamin. They are very much disturbed when Benjamin had to be brought down into Egypt. You remember that Judah offered himself for Benjamin as a surety. He seems to speak for all of them in that, but in Genesis chapter 43, verse 3, that's when they had come back from their first journey down there and had been told, quote, don't come back and seek more food unless you bring Benjamin with you, end quote. Jacob didn't want to let Benjamin go because he had already lost Joseph, and he didn't want to lose Benjamin. So you read in Genesis 43, verse 3, quote, Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You may not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother along, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you do not send him, then we will not go down, because the man said, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. End quote. Then down in verses 8 and 9, Judah said to Israel, his father, quote, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you. I will bear the blame before you all my life, end quote. So Judah offers himself in that way as surety for Benjamin, and the unity in the house is restored. So everybody contributes something, you might say. Joseph contributes something, Judah contributes something, Jacob contributes something, so that the ancestors of the nation are preserved and brought to Egypt, where they grow to be a nation. Now, the climax of this whole section is in Genesis chapter 44, verses 18 through 33. I think I'll read that. 
This is after they had taken Benjamin and gone back to Egypt, gotten their food, and left. And Joseph had that silver cup placed in Benjamin's sack, and then their pursuers discovered that that silver cup is in Benjamin's sack. And he is then taken back as a prisoner. In verse 8 of chapter 44, you read, Quote, Judah went up to him and said, Please, my lord, let your servant speak a word to my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, quote, Bring him down to me, so that I can see him for myself. Unquote. And we said to my lord, quote, The boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. Unquote. But you told your servants, quote, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Unquote. Then we went back to your servant, my father. We told him what my lord had said. Then our father said, quote, go back and buy a little more food, end quote. But we said, quote, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us, end quote. Your servant, my father, said to us, quote, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, quote, he has surely been torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me, too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, quote, If I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. End quote. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my lord's slave in the place of the boy. Let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father, end quote. That's a very dramatic picture, where Judah presents himself and pleads for himself to be put in the place of Benjamin, so that Benjamin is not kept there. In this book, I think I mentioned early on in the course, The Art of Biblical Narrative by Robert Alter, Alter is one of the advocates of this so-called new literary approach of analysis of Old Testament narrative. Some aspects of this book are good, some are bad. But in connection with this passage, he makes some interesting remarks that I thought I would read to you. He says, quote, In the light of all that we have seen about the story of Joseph, end quote, this is on page 174 of Alter's The Art of Biblical Narrative, quote, in the light of all we have seen about the story of Joseph and his brothers, it should be clear that this remarkable speech is a point-for-point -point undoing, morally and psychologically, of the brothers' earlier violation of paternal and filial bonds. 
a basic biblical perception about both human relations and relations between God and man is that love is unpredictable, arbitrary, at times perhaps seemingly unjust. And Judah now comes to an acceptance of the fact with all its consequences. His father, he states clearly to Joseph, has singled out Benjamin for a special love as he singled out Rachel's other son before. It is a painful reality of favoritism with which Judah, in contrast to the earlier jealousy over Joseph, is here reconciled, out of filial duty and more out of filial love. His entire speech is motivated out of the deepest empathy for his father, by a real understanding of what it means for the old man's very life to be bound up with that of his lad. He can even bring himself to quote sympathetically verse 27, Jacob's typically extravagant statements that his wife bore him two sons. Now see, that's, quote, you know, my wife bore me two sons, end quote, Jacob says, as though Leah were not also his wife, and the other ten were not also his sons. Twenty-two years earlier, Judah engineered the selling of Joseph into slavery. Now he's prepared to offer himself as a slave so that the other son of Rachel can be set free. Twenty-two years earlier, he stood with his brothers as he silently watched when the bloodied tunic they had brought to Jacob sent his father into a pit of anguish. Now he's willing to do anything in order not to see his father suffer that way again. So you get a great reversal of the earlier situation." Quote. So I think that we see then, as far as redemptive historical perspective, in the movement of these narratives is that the children of Israel are united, brought to Egypt, where, in the isolation of Goshen, we really don't know, as far as I can tell, how long Joseph was in Egypt before Jacob came down into Egypt. We know that there were seven years of famine, seven lean years, and seven fat years. You could say that when the famine was up, that would have been 14 years but we don't know how long he was in prison. He was in prison for a couple years. How long was he there before he went to prison? We don't know exactly. Does it say he, that he was 17 when he went down there? Seems to me approximately 20 years is a reasonable estimate before Jacob comes down into Egypt to be reunited with Joseph. All right, number four is, quote, when did Joseph enter Egypt? End quote. This, of course, is related to the question of what we'll sh look at shortly, and that is the date of the Exodus. But at this point, it's a question in its own right. When you read in chapter 39, verse 1, quote, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, the Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. End quote. The problem is, it doesn't tell us the name of the Pharaoh. See, in Genesis 39, verse 1, it just says, quote, Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, end quote. And that's characteristic of not only Genesis here, but also in the early chapters of Exodus. That's when the Egyptian ruler is spoken of. He's just referred to by the title, quote, Pharaoh, end quote, and no name is given. 
That's part of the reason why it's very difficult to tie this in directly with Egyptian history, which would then give us a date, a firm date. Who was Pharaoh? Well, we really don't know. If we work with the biblical chronological date of it, it gets somewhat complex. But we've really gone over most of this in connection with our discussion relating to the patriarchs. Remember that we said that the dating of the patriarchs rests on two variables, and the two variables are the date of the Exodus and Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, whether you take the Masoretic text or the Septuagint reading, which means, was Israel 430 years in Egypt or 215 years in Egypt? But a summary of that, then, of patriarchal materials is depending on 1. The date of the Exodus being 1446 or 1290 B.C. And 2. Whether one follows the Masoretic text or the Septuagint in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. Did Abraham enter Canaan 430 years before the Exodus or 645 years before the Exodus? The possibilities are, for the patriarchal period, with earlier dates for the Exodus and the Masoretic text, then 2091 B.C. for the birth of Abraham, or with the date, or with the late dates for the Exodus and the Masoretic text, 1935 B.C. for the birth of Abraham. Now, if you took those figures, 2091 and 1935, which I think are the most likely two figures, that's assuming the Masoretic text in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, and that's assuming either an earlier or a late date of the Exodus. So if you take that 2091 figure or 1290 figure, you work this way then. When did Joseph enter Egypt? If you take the 2091 BC date, which would mean 2166 is the date of Abram's birth, the reason for that is Abraham was 75 years old when he came down into Canaan. Then you take 160 years that Jacob was born after Abraham. We've looked at that previously. You have to trace the ages of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which you can do. You find that Jacob was born 160 years after Abraham. Jacob was 130 when he came into Egypt. We find that in Genesis chapter 47, verse 9, where you read, quote, Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, end quote, and so forth. If you assume that Joseph had been in Egypt for approximately 20 years already, so you subtract 20 from that, you get a figure of 270 when you subtract 270 from 2166 BC, that would give you 1896 BC would be the year of the arrival of Joseph in Egypt. So that could be plus or minus a few years based on this unknown period of how long Joseph had been in Egypt. But approximately 1896 BC, based on the early date view of the Exodus, because this figure is assuming an early starting date for the Exodus. Now, if you assume the late date for the Exodus and work with that, 
1935 BC figure, then you do the same thing. You take the 160, the 130 minus 20, that's 270, and you subtract the 270 from 2010 BC, and you get 1740 BC as the year of the arrival of Joseph in Egypt. So those are really your two possibilities, working with the biblical data of length of life of the patriarchs. All right, what are the implications of these two dates? 1896 B.C. versus 1740 B.C. If you take the early date, the 1896 date, that would place Joseph in the period of the 12th dynasty of Egypt, which is a native Egyptian dynasty. The 12th dynasty reigned from 1991 to 1786 B.C. If, however, you take the later date, 1740 B.C., that would place Joseph in the time of the Hyksos. See, that's why there is some interest in this question. The Hyksos, who were foreign rulers who came in and gained control in Egypt for a period of time, generally dated around 1750 to about 1570 B.C., although the precise dates of the Hyksos period are somewhat obscure because of the lack of firm historical data. But generally they are placed 1750 to 1570 B.C., so you would see that 1740 B.C. would be shortly after the Hyksos came to power, if that date is correct. Now, the idea that Israel, or rather Jacob and his family, Joseph, came down to Egypt during the time of the Hyksos is, is a very old idea. Josephus says that a Hyksos dynasty was ruling Egypt when Joseph became prime minister in Pharaoh's court. That's found in Josephus. Not that that's a very good authority, because, because in the same context where Josephus says that he then goes on to identify the Hyksos with the Israelites, he feels that the expulsion of the Hyksos is to be identified with the Exodus. That certainly is not accurate historically. But what Josephus is interested in doing when he speaks about Joseph coming into Egypt during the time of the Hyksos is to establish the antiquity of the Jews, and he uses that kind of a historical argument. Now, what we know about the Hyksos is not a whole lot. They were Asiatic invaders who came to power about 1750 B.C., although the exact time is not clear, but approximately 1750 B.C. They ruled for a couple centuries. The Egyptian historian Manetho, we read about him in Finnegan, was a historian from about 250 B.C. He explains the meaning of the name, quote, Hyksos, end quote, as, quote, shepherd kings, end quote. You've probably heard that before. The Hyksos were, quote, shepherd kings, end quote. Manetho felt that the very word, quote, Hyksos, end quote, meant, quote, shepherd king, end quote. The etymology of that term, of that name, quote, Hyksos, end quote, however, is much debated. Most scholars today are not ready to accept Manetho's explanation of the meaning of the term as, quote, shepherd king, end quote. Most scholars today think the term means, quote, foreign rulers, end quote, or, quote, rulers of foreign lands, end quote. But in any case, you had these Hyksos who ruled in Egypt at that particular period of time. 
it's always been a question of some interest whether Joseph came into power during the early days of Hyksos rule or whether he came into power prior to that under a native Egyptian dynasty. If you take the earlier date of the Exodus, then you're going to pick the date prior to the Hyksos. Lower Egypt is in the Delta area. Upper Egypt is in the upper region of the Nile, which is on the map. It's down. It's reversed. It is known that the Hyksos had their center, their capital, in the Delta region. So again, that fits. That's one of the lines of argument to associate Joseph with the Hyksos, because the Hyksos were centered there in the Delta. The great Egyptian rulers had their capitals farther to the south. Whether or not Joseph came in with the Hyksos or prior to the Hyksos, of course, does have some bearing on the events of the Exodus and the oppressions that were connected with the Exodus. It's a debated issue. The kinds of arguments that are being used to support one position or the other, apart from the chronological material, are not decisive. I don't think you can really settle it. Let me just give you some idea of the kinds of arguments. Those who favor Joseph's rise to power during the Hyksos rule would be the late date. Make some of the following arguments. In Genesis chapter 47, verse 17, you have a reference to horses. You read there, quote, They brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep, their goats, their cattle, and their donkeys, end quote. Now, it's generally believed that the Hyksos were the first ones to import horses into Egypt, that there weren't horses in Egypt prior to the Hyksos. So the argument is, horses are mentioned here. This must be during the time of the Hyksos. Another argument is Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. And this argument cuts both ways, as you'll see later. Exodus 1, verse 8 says, quote, Then a new king who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us, end quote, and so forth. Quote, the new king, who knew not Joseph, end quote, it's said that that statement is best explained as a native Egyptian who came to power after the expulsion of the Hyksos. In connection with that, it is said that this may explain the silence of Egyptian sources about Joseph and his work when he rose to such prominence in Egypt. There's no trace of that in any Egyptian records. Then the assumption is he rose to power under the Hyksos. When the native Egyptians came back, they just wiped out the history of the Hyksos period. We know almost nothing about the Hyksos period because the Egyptians destroyed all traces of it. The third line of argument is what I just mentioned a minute ago. The pharaoh in the time of Joseph seems to have had his residence in the Nile Delta area near the land of Goshen. And that's where Joseph was settled with his family, his father and brothers. The Hyksos had their capital city and exercised their rule from the Delta area. So that's a line of argument. Fourthly, it's said that it is more likely that under Hyksos' rule it would be possible for a Semite like Joseph to achieve the high position that he did. In other words, he was a foreigner. He wasn't an Egyptian. 
it would have been more likely for someone like Joseph to rise to that prominent position when there was foreign rule in Egypt than when there was native Egyptian rule. Then in Genesis chapter 39, verse 1, where you read, quote, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt by Potiphar, the Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials. The captain of the guard bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there, unquote. It says, quote, Potiphar, an Egyptian, unquote. The point is made that that qualification or that designation for Potiphar being an Egyptian is understandable only in the period of the Hyksos, when the Pharaoh himself was not of Egyptian lineage. In other words, why would you add the qualifier, quote, an Egyptian, end quote? It seems like that's an exception. What else would he be? He's in Egypt. You expect it to just say, quote, Potiphar, end quote. But if it's in the Hyksos period, here's something unique, you see. Here's this Potiphar, who's really an Egyptian. It is certainly not a conclusive argument by any means. So none of those arguments, even though they're plausible arguments, they are not really conclusive. They don't force you to the conclusion that he had to be there in the time of the Hyksos. I see my time is up, so we'll look at these arguments the other way for coming of Joseph to Egypt prior to the Hyksos in the next hour. This ends Dr. Robert Benoit's Old Testament History Lecture, number 29.